The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Practice Points in TGCT Updates on Safe Use of Novel Systemic Options. Access the entire activity and complete the post test at peerview.com forward slash UVR860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, and welcome to Practice Points in TGCT, Updates on Safe Use of Novel Systemic Options. I'm Dr. William Tapp from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Thank you very much for joining us for this educational program, which is a second in a series of three activities on new developments in managing TGCT, a rare but challenging connective tissue tumor. During this program, we'll focus on the safe use of systemic treatment, but also reinforce the idea that optimal TGCT management is multidisciplinary in nature and should include a collaboration between orthopedic oncologists and medical oncologists. I also encourage you to review the first activity in this series, which features a case-based discussion between orthopedic and oncology colleagues. Before we get started, I also want to note that during this program, we will periodically share several resources for addressing safety considerations with targeted agents in TGCT. You'll want to refer to these practice aids throughout our discussion, so please take a moment to download these practice tools. So we can begin. So tenosynovial giant cell tumor is a rare mesenchymal neoplasm with two distinct clinical presentations. We tend to talk about a localized or nodular tenosynovial giant cell tumor versus a diffuse tenosynovial giant cell tumor. Generally, when we talk about medical management, we're really focusing on forms of the diffuse tenosynovial giant cell tumor, which is usually larger locally aggressive and has a very high recurrence rate. It's often very infiltrative along the synovium and the joint. From my standpoint, as a medical oncologist, usually dealing with more of the recalcitrant and diffuse forms of the disease, we do often include multiple conversations with um, the orthopedic oncologist because we have to understand how the process is affecting the joint and potentially uh, in need for surgery at any time during our treatments. The other thing is that we also like to include many of our colleagues who deal with physical and occupational therapy as well as palliative care and pain control. And important in the considerations of any treatments is really talking to the patient. The patient has been living with this disease for many years, really understands how it's affecting their quality of life. So understanding what are their goals and how we can help with either medical, surgical management, or supportive care is really critical in understanding the right treatment paradigm for that individual person. So one of the important uh, discoveries in tenosynovial giant cell tumor really came out in the early uh, 2000s, around 2006, which was the discovery that most of these um, diseases are actually led by a translocation that includes uh, the CSF1 gene. Um, we've now found that there are multiple translocation partners that we can actually see with the CSF1 gene, but it's this upregulation and overactivity of CSF1 that actually contributes to the pathogenesis and the propagation of the disease. And what actually happens when you have the upregulation of CSF1 is you have the recruitment of CSF1 
receptor-bearing inflammatory cells that can actually come to the joint. When we think of these large tumors, the neoplastic clone, the one that actually has the translocation, is the minority within large tumors that we often see. Most are going to be those inflammatory cells that are attracted to the joint by the overexpression of CSF1. This was important because we do have in oncology and medicine multiple CSF1R inhibitors. We originally were working with drugs like imatinib and nilotinib, which can have very nice activity in tenosynovial giant cell tumors. These tend to be weaker CSF1R inhibitors and multi-targeted tyrosine kinase inhibitors, so not necessarily specific to CSF1R alone. Um, newer drugs such as pexidartinib and some in clinical trials like vimseltinib are stronger, more specific CSF1R inhibitors, um, and they're really beginning to revolutionize how we think about tenosynovial giant cell tumors. So if we look quickly at some of the data with imatinib and nilotinib, um, most of the data in imatinib is going to be anecdotal, retrospective, and there have been nice series that actually show efficacy um, with drugs such as imatinib. What we often see when we think about uh, drugs like imatinib is, a, is an overall response rate of about 18 to 30 percent. Um, because it's a weaker CSF1R inhibitor, we don't always see dramatic changes in tumor size, but it is a drug that we can actually see improvement in symptoms. And again, this is why it's important when we have discussions with patients of what is actually the goals of the care, the medical management that we're using. Another drug, a sister to imatinib, of course, which we all know about is nilotinib. And there's also been some very nice efficacy shown in prospective clinical trials with the use of of nilotinib. And what we tend to see, again, with drugs like nilotinib is stability. Length of use is still in question, but another drug in which we know the side effect profile, we know the black box warnings from a cardiac standpoint, but it allows us to um, introduce a wider range of therapies that we could consider for our patients. More recently, we have um, data with with uh, specifically pexidartinib. Pexidartinib is a multi-targeted tyrosine kinase inhibitor, but it is a strong CSF1R inhibitor. And there were um, really nice responses in the extension um, uh, portions of a phase one clinical trial and later and actually the first large international randomized clinical trial in um, tenosynovial giant cell tumor specifically. And what we know with the use of pexidartinib as compared to placebo is that you can see dramatic shrinkages in disease. The study was designed so the primary endpoint was a resist overall response rate at the, the 25th week. There was also a tumor volume score, which was a volumetric assessment of the tumor. Tenosynovial giant cell tumors can be very infiltrative and actually very difficult to measure early on with unidimensional measurements of resist and hence the development of the tumor volume score. But what the trial showed is that there were dramatic shrinkages within the disease within the first six months with an overall response rate of about 39% um, by resist and actually higher of about 56% when we looked at the volumetric tumor volume score. What we also know with longer follow-up of patients, so now we have longer-term data of over a few years, you can actually see the response rate by RESIST um, went up dramatically and caught up with the volumetric scores as these tumors really shrank. So very importantly is that strong CSF1R inhibitors, and we don't necessarily think this is unique to pexidartinib, you can see dramatic changes in the size of the tumor. 
Importantly, as this is a neoplastic process and not a malignancy per se, it was important to show that these changes in size were meaningful for the patient. So the studies had multiple uh, secondary endpoints looking at improvements in pain, range of motion through goniometry testing, as well as promised physical function. And all of the secondary endpoints with some slight statistical exceptions of pain showed dramatic improvements in range of motion and actually promised physical function. So showing that a decrease in size of these tumors with strong CSF1R inhibitors are actually meaningful for the patient. So very excited to have um, now an approved drug uh, specifically for tenosynovial giant cell tumor. Again, we don't want to focus solely on pexidartinib. There are other classes of drugs which are now being developed. Um, I don't want to say other classes. They're all CSF1R inhibitors, but other agents which are now being developed. And we're looking into efficacy profiles, but as well as the toxicity profiles of the drugs. Um, right now, we're also deciding how long to use these drugs and what's the best way to select patients. So having more drugs available for a discussion inclusive to drugs like imatinib and nilotinib becomes very important in consideration uh, uh, for our patients. So vinceltinib is a very strong CSF1R inhibitor. It's very specific. Uh, it's being evaluated right now in phase one clinical trials and extension. There's some early data that shows that it has very nice efficacy and is also well tolerated. So we're exciting that drugs like vinceltinib and other um, CSF1R inhibitors, which aren't mentioned here, will hopefully make it into the clinic to offer our patients more options. One of the things that I'd like to talk to you about specifically in uh, this section is the safe use of pexidartinib because that is the only drug that we have currently FDA approved for tenosynovial giant cell tumor. And there are definitely some nuances in how we approach uh, uh, patient care and how we use um, pexidartinib within the clinics. And to do that, I thought it would be nice to have a hypothetical um, clinical situation that we can discuss. And so this is Beth, a 39-year-old female with tenosynovial giant cell tumor of the knee. Just to mention, this is probably the median age. Um, we see a little more prevalence in females than males. And the majority of the times we see the disease are in the knee, although it can happen within any joint within the body, although only one joint. If you see multifocal involvement, you have to question the diagnosis or other things that are going on. Uh, specifically for Beth, uh, Beth has had uh, has been dealing with tenosynovial giant cell tumor for some time. She's had multiple surgeries, a synovectomy after the initial diagnosis in 2015, a recurrence uh, several years later that progressed and required another synovectomy in 2018, and then another fairly rapid recurrence again, which ended up having surgery a few years later, suggesting that the recurrence was there earlier, the disease grew, became symptomatic, and really looked for that surgery to um, uh, help alleviate symptoms. Unfortunately, as you can see, is that the need for surgery is becoming more and more frequent, showing the recalcitrant nature of this diffuse type of tenosynovial giant cell tumor. And clinically, how it affects Beth is that it really does affect her um, quality of life, activities of daily living. She has issues with stiffness. It limits what she can do. And so in discussions with her, it was really felt that trying medical management, if we can affect 
affect those symptoms could really improve the quality of our life. And these are the discussions that we often have, not only with the patient, but also including our orthopedic oncology colleagues to understand how the disease is affecting the joint, um, how it could be affecting the stability of the joint, a need for replacement at some time, and what is our window to try medical management. In discussions with orthopedic oncology, and more importantly with Beth at this point, um, the decision was made to move ahead with medical management. So the recommended dose is based on the enlivened study, which is 800 milligrams divided daily, so 400 milligrams twice daily. Currently, the drug is taken on an empty stomach at least one hour prior to, or excuse me, two hours prior to a meal or one hour after, right? So it does affect the schedule with a twice um, dose daily. I will say, because some of the side effects that we talk about, often in our patients we start at a lower dose. Uh, we do know with the 400 milligram twice daily dose, we can see dramatic um, responses early on. But most patients don't require such dramatic responses. And if you start at a lower dose, you can improve clinical symptoms, you can ensure safety of the drug, and then you can titrate accordingly, either to side effects or the need to have a stronger response. But just something to think about when you're actually talking about starting the drug, figuring out that right dosage um, can be very important. But again, the recommended dose, according to the label, is 400 milligrams twice daily. Some of the main side effects that we talk to about the, talk to with the patient before we start the drug has to do with a very rare mixed or cholestatic hepatotoxicity that was noted on the phase three clinical trials, specifically in patients who uh, had a 1,000 milligram lead-in for two weeks and then went down to 800 milligrams. This was also seen in clinical trials um, outside of TGCT and, and sometimes in combination with, with other drugs in cancers. But the mixed cholestatic hepatotoxicity can be serious, it's idiopathic, and it is something that we really have to watch for patients. And in my mind, Although rare, this is often the crux of the decision, especially in younger people, as to whether or not you know, we would like to start the drug. Um, importantly, when we monitor for this, as we talk about, we need to do frequent labs, and we watch very closely the alkaline phosphatase, GGT, and the bilirubin. We distinguish this mixed or cholestatic hepatotoxicity with elevations in the aminotransferases, AST and ALT, which we think is an on-target effect of the drugs possibly affecting the Kupfer cells, although I don't know if the exact mechanism of action is known. Um, but it's not uncommon to see elevations in ALT, ALT. These are dose-dependent and reversible and easily modifiable when, when you make dose adjustments. But two different processes that are going on in the liver and something that, again, needs to be talked about um, when, when you speak to patients about starting, a, starting specifically pexidartinib. Importantly, because of the cholestatic hepatotoxicity, there is a risk evaluation mitigation strategy that is mandated in all patients who start uh, the drug. Part of this is education for the patients. Part of this is education for the uh, prescribing physician. But there's also mandated labs that are very important. And these are weekly labs for the first eight weeks of treatment, specifically monitoring uh, liver parameters, AST, ALT, and like we spoke about, total 
bilirubin, direct bilirubin, alkaphosphatase, and GGT. This allows us to see if the patient is developing the cholestatic hepatotoxicity, which often happens very early on in treatment, and hopefully that if um, adjustments are made when you begin to see elevations in bilirubin or alkaline phosphatase, you can prevent any of the more serious complications of the cholestatic hepatotoxicity that happens. Uh, often, you know, described as a vanishing bile duct syndrome. So the label is actually very specific and helpful when um, we think about uh, some of the liver abnormalities that we see, uh, specifically dose modifications and suggestions regarding elevations of AST and ALT. And this is listed in that slide, but it's actually a very nice reference. More importantly is real scrutiny of the alkaline phosphatase and the bilirubin. And holding to the parameters that are noted into the label regarding this, even potentially if it's cessation of drug, becomes really important because we do want to avoid uh, any issues with the cholestatic hepatotoxicity. But overall, I think the directions in the label are very strong in this regard. And it's just important for me to point out again uh, the need for these conversations with the patient about this rare cholestatic uh, toxicity. Otherwise, there are more common toxicities associated with the drug. Again, the important need for um, discussions with the patient. It is a drug that will turn hair gray or white. Uh, this can be total body hair. Um, this is thought to be due to the effect against wild-type kit signaling, but something for the patient to note. And then other uh, symptoms specific to tyrosine kinase inhibitors that are more common, uh, facial edema. Uh, sometimes we can see elevations in blood pressure because it's a pill, any forms of GI distress. But most of these, again, are modifiable based on how you use the drug. And because this is a neoplastic process, it's not always critical to have the patient on drug continuously. So looking for appropriate breaks and dose modifications, people can still do really well with longer term use of the drug, but we shouldn't push into extremis because again, oftentimes the side effects of a medication overtake the symptoms of the disease when the drugs really work and modify those symptoms. So, so in summary for our patients, uh, as, as I mentioned, we started Beth on treatment. We were able to watch her parameters really well. She tolerated it very well. Um, we didn't see any abnormalities in the liver and had dramatic improvement in symptoms early on. Now we are in discussions with Beth with every scan, how long do we wanna try the drug? Should we try dose modification? Should we try holidays? And can we alleviate any uh, more of the annoying side effects that we can often see with the drug so that she can have longer term use and an excellent quality of life? So I wanted to thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this brief discussion. And um, I appreciate that you're thinking about caring for patients with tenosynovial giant cell tumor. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash UVR860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo Incorporated.